Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. I bring you tidings of great joy. For this past Friday, a child was born in the city of Calgary to our son, Michael and Becky Shore. (laughs) And she shall be called Christabel Rain Shore. And there were grandparents abiding breathlessly in their homes at night. And upon hearing of this wonder, rejoiced and said to all who would listen, Thank you, Lord. We're grandparents again. So we are grateful for that. You know, it kind of reminds me of a time about 23 years ago, I received a distress call from one of our church families. And on that particular day, I was with our two middle sons, uh, John and Josh, who were around four and five at the time. And uh, so I had no choice. I had to take them along with me to uh, visit this particular family. Uh, About uh, three blocks from our home, we were stopped at a red light when I noticed that something wasn't right. Jonathan, who was five, as I said, he was leaning forward in his seat with his nose pressed up against the inside of the windshield. And Joshua was standing on the hump uh, in the back seat, holding on to each of the buckets, kind of enjoying the scenery and the view as we were driving. It was then that I realized that I'd forgotten the inexcusable. I'd forgotten to strap them in, and I determined to pull over and do that promptly. Now, in my defense, just months before this incident took place, we were not required by law to actually wear seatbelts. And like many Albertans, I was having a hard time getting used to the change. That's my excuse, and I'm sticking with it, okay? Anyways, while I pondered all of this, Joshua pointed and said, Daddy, look, a policeman. I looked to my left, and when our eyes met, I knew that he knew that I knew that I was cooked. (laughs) Now, I should tell you that in order to convince the boys to wear their seatbelts, we used various forms of motivation and persuasion, one of which was that Daddy might end up in jail. So when the officer's lights went on and and he pulled uh, us over, they lost it real quick. Both sat down immediately and frantically started to put on their seatbelts. The policeman asked for my insurance, which was the wrong one. It was for the other car. He asked for my driver's license, which I'd left at home, and my vehicle registration, which, thank goodness, was up to date and convinced him that I was who I said I was. Now, you have to picture this. While the officer is standing there at the window asking for all of my documents. Joshua's in the back seat, working up a sweat, huffing and puffing, trying to still get his seatbelt on. It's obvious by the panic that he's displaying. He's convinced it's the last time he's going to see his dad on this side of the jail bars. Finally, in total frustration, he just breaks out, crying and says, Dad, I can't get this stupid seatbelt on. The policeman looked at me and smiled. He said, I assume you know why I pulled you over. I sheepishly said, yep. And then he said, I'll be right back. And I knew it wouldn't be with a present either. Now, folks, as I sat there, I experienced what it feels like to be hopelessly guilty, awaiting sentence. 
I wanted to plead for mercy, tell him what all the police officers who attend our church would never do this to me. But I knew I was guilty, and so there I sat, waving to members of our congregation as they drove by, for the, and waiting for the axe to fall. Then a most unusual thing happened. As promised, the police officer came back. Only instead of handing me a ticket, he said, you get a gift today. He said, you're free to go because I just locked myself out of my car. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's the experience of grace. It really is. I was guilty. I deserved to pay the penalty, but a way of escape was provided, and I took it, believe me, with gratitude. You know, when I'm tempted to be selfish, when I find it hard to extend grace to people I think don't deserve it, it's good to be reminded of the great price that Jesus paid on the cross to extend grace to someone like me who didn't deserve his grace either. 1 John 4 verse 8 says, Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Now John is saying here a litmus test that you've truly experienced the love and the grace of God in your life is a willingness on your part to extend that love and grace to other people. Now in the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been studying Jesus talks about the nature of love. And he stretches our understanding of what real love is to the fullest possible extent. He essentially says, to understand the kind of love that I want you to have for other people, I don't want you thinking just about those in your life who are easy to love. No, I want you thinking about your enemy. Let's read what he has to say about this beginning Matthew 5, verse 42. Would you stand with me and join me in reading this passage together? You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let us pray. Our heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. And Lord, the way it speaks to our lives. And Lord, we don't always understand or don't always appreciate some of those words because we know that it, it means that there's some change that we need to make in our lives. Lord, I pray that we won't run from you when you speak to us by your spirit through your word. But Lord, that we will have the courage to respond in whatever way you would have us to. I pray that you would focus our minds you would soften our hearts to receive what you have for us today. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. You 
Now, as I read this passage this past week, there were several questions that came to mind, which I'm going to use to guide us through this scripture lesson today. The first question that came to my mind is this. What does Jesus mean when he calls us to love our enemies? Jesus starts out in verse 42 saying, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Now I want you to notice that Jesus does not command us to like our enemies here. He does not command us to be best friends with our enemies. He does not ask us to go on vacation with our enemies or to spend lots of time with our enemies. No, he calls us to love our enemies, and there is a difference. William Barclay points out that in the Greek, there are four different words for the word love. There is storge love, which is a family love. The love you have for your children, for your parents, for your siblings. There is eros love, which is a sexual love. An affectionate kind of love. The passion a man has for a woman or a woman for a man. There is phileo love. A a friendship love. That exists between the truest of friends. Now notice that these three kinds of love describe a person's feeling of love for another. These three types of love can't be forced For example, you can't command someone to have romantic feelings for someone else. Some of us parents would love to do that with our children, but we can't command it. Either these feelings are there or they're not. Bruce Larson says, liking is involuntary. You can't control who you enjoy being with. You can't control those that you're attracted to. So we're not being asked here to like our enemy. We're being asked to love our enemy. Which brings us to the fourth kind of love. Agape love. Agape love is a decision to love someone even when that someone doesn't love us back. Even when that someone doesn't deserve to be loved from our perspective. This is the kind of love that Jesus is referring to here. He's saying, agape your enemy. Agape love your enemy. Regardless of how annoying, how unlikable, how rude, choose to love them back. Choose to treat them as if you did like them. Extend grace. Extend goodwill and blessing to them. Which leads us to the second question. Why should we love our enemy? Well, one reason that we should love our enemy is because our love points people to God. In verse 48, Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Is he asking us for moral perfection? No, he's not calling on us to be perfect in our behavior because we can't achieve that level of perfection in this life. The Greek word that's used here for perfect is teleos, which means to be mature. It means to fulfill the purpose for which we were created. The Bible is very clear that we were created to glorify God, and we are never more like God. We are never more mature. We are never closer to fulfilling the purpose that 
we have in this life than when we love those who don't love us. Look at verse 44 again. Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now, this doesn't mean, as some people assume, that we can earn our way into God's family by loving our enemies. No, this means when we love our enemies, it shows that we're already part of God's family. We're already his children. In essence, Jesus is saying, love your enemy. So they will, so they will be, so that you will be who you really are, a child of God. And so others will be drawn to God through you. You see, when people return evil for evil, that's expected. Even when people return good for good, that's expected. I mean, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But when someone returns good for evil, that speaks volumes to others about the reality of our faith and the reality of the God that we serve. A second reason we should love our enemy is because hate destroys our soul. It distorts our personality. It distorts our perception in life. The person with bitter thoughts and angry attitudes often becomes a bitter and an angry person. He becomes a hostage to his own hate. A further reason that we should love our enemy is because hate destroys relationships. It destroys our relationship with God and also our relationship with others. Our hatred just spills over in a toxic form in our relationships. On the other hand, when we agape love our enemy, it not only puts an end to the escalating cycle of revenge and retaliation, which we talked about last week, but it paves the way for reconciliation. Saul of Tarsus, he was a brutal enemy of the early Christians. Many feared him because he hunted them down, had many of them killed. And I'm sure as a result that many early Christians despised him. But I'm also certain that there were those who prayed for him. Because the day came when Saul met Jesus. He was radically transformed. His name was changed to Paul and he became a friend to the early Christians. He became their greatest comrade and ally. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, God's love is the only power that can transform an enemy into a friend. Only the love and the light of Christ can break the cycle of hate. A fourth reason that we should love our enemy is because hate destroys your body. Hate is like a poison that corrodes your health. Scientists have found that chronic anger and, and bitter hostility towards your enemy can be more toxic to your body than smoking cigarettes or being overweight or eating a high-fat diet. Lee Strobel tells of a woman who helped victims of the German atrocities recover after the Second World War. And she noticed an amazing phenomena among her patients. Those who developed a forgiving attitude toward their enemies, to those who had hurt them, 
they were able to rebuild their lives despite their, their injuries. On the other hand, those who remained bitter remained invalids, unable to function and move forward. Which brings us to the third and final question that I had as I looked at this passage. How? That's the big question, isn't it? How do we exercise agape love toward our enemy? To answer this, I'd like us to turn to Luke's version of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. This is what Jesus says there. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Now, as you're going to see in a moment, Matthew's version communicates the exact same truths, just in a different order and in a different way. I like the way that it's summarized in, Luke, in Luke's version, and so we're just going to follow the points that are made there. The first way that we exercise agape love to our enemies is to name our enemy. He says, love your enemies. If you're going to love your enemies, you need to name them. You need to know who they are. You see, most people, and in particular those of us who are Christians, we don't like to think that we hate anyone. We like to believe that we love everyone. Or we're willing to acknowledge that we don't like everyone. But it's hard for us as Christians to admit that we don't love everyone. And so what happens is we often go into denial. Even though we do things and we say things that clearly prove that we have enemies. We won't consciously admit to ourselves, much less to God or anyone else, that there are people who feel like enemies to us. Daryl Johnson makes the astute observation that you won't come to love your enemies until you admit that they are actually your enemies. You need to name them. So let me give you some examples. Hopefully these help, examples will help serve to help us identify who our enemies really are and perhaps will serve to pull off the scab of denial in this area. Your enemy may be someone who simply doesn't like you and makes you quite aware of it. They don't like you because your hair is longer than theirs is or shorter than theirs is. They don't like you because your skin color is different than theirs. They don't like you because they see you as more attractive or more popular or more successful or more effective at your job than they are. Or perhaps it's just the opposite. They kind of see you as a loser, someone not worth their time. Your enemy, in the words of Jesus, is the person who hates you, who curses and slanders you, who mistreats you, who even seeks to injure you. These kind of enemies are, are pretty easy to identify when we can actually sense and feel the hatred of others toward us. Your enemy could be people of a certain race. It could be people of a certain religion. It could be people who hold opposing views than you do on such issues as abortion or homosexuality. Your enemy could be someone who abused you in some way. 
Your enemy could be your parents who trashed your self-esteem while you were growing up. Or parents who indulged you and spoiled you, said you were the darling of the universe. And now you lack the personal discipline and the character to be successful in your life, to be successful in your marriage and in the workplace. Maybe your enemy is a rebellious and an ungrateful child who you poured your life into, who blames you for everything, but won't take responsibility for his own actions. Maybe your enemy is a spouse who withholds their love and affection from you. Maybe your enemy is a spouse who cheated on you or left you for someone else. Or a former spouse who is just making the issue with the children, the custody of the children, a miserable experience. Maybe your enemy is a friend when you, whom you trusted and who betrayed you. Or a girlfriend or boyfriend who broke your heart. Maybe your enemy is a man who impregnated you and then left you high and dry. Maybe your enemy are people in your church who don't totally align with you theologically and doctrinally, who are, from your perspective, more liberal or perhaps more conservative in their thinking. Maybe your enemy is an obnoxious neighbor who consistently has loud parties and lets their dog bark endlessly and do his business on your lawn. Maybe your enemy is someone at work who constantly undermines you and your reputation and who is unreliable, has a poor work ethic, and yet talks a great talk. In short, if there is a person in your life that you don't like, that you don't respect, that you avoid, that you don't pray for, compliment or encourage. If there's a person you like to cast in a negative light whenever you have the opportunity, sarcastically or otherwise, if you find that your heart leaps when they fail or are demoted and that your heart grows cold when they are successful and well thought of, chances are really high that this person or these people are your enemy. And what Jesus says here applies to them. That's the first way we express agape love to our enemies, and that is to name who they are, to identify them. A second way we exercise agape love to our enemies is to do good to them. Again, Jesus said that in Luke. But in Matthew 5.45, Jesus challenges us to be like our Father in heaven. And then he describes what our Father in heaven is like. He says, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus says, God is generous with his enemies. With those who blaspheme his name who undermine his purposes at every opportunity. Because of his love for them, he withholds his wrath and he liberally extends his grace and his love to them. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In other words, seek to meet your enemy's legitimate needs. In Luke 6, 31, Jesus says, do to others as you would have them do to you. In other words, put yourself in their shoes and then treat them as you would like to be treated. Do for them what you would appreciate them doing for you. If your enemy falls on hard times, be generous in helping them, even if you have to do it anonymously. But your capacity to do it anonymously tells you that you've forgiven them. If your enemy is successful, congratulate him. Wish God's best for him. If she needs help, go to her aid. Even if your enemy ignores you, mistreats you, lashes out at you, don't retaliate. Just keep being friendly and kind and doing good to them. C.S. Lewis says the key to loving your enemy is to treat them as if you like them. He writes, the rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste your time bothering, bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, he says, we find one of the great secrets of life. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love them. Some of you need to apply this to your marriage. Some of you here would have to admit that your marriage is in serious trouble and that your spouse feels more like an enemy than a lover and a friend. You can't bring yourself to come right out and say it. But the reality is you actually have come to despise your spouse. You have no feelings left for your spouse. Well, if you want to rekindle the feelings of love and passion that you once had, begin to treat your spouse the way you did at first when you first fell in love. In the words of Jesus here in Luke 6, do good to your spouse. Bless your spouse and pray for your spouse. A woman came to her lawyer one day and said, you know, I want to get a divorce from my husband. I have absolutely no feelings left for him. In fact, I hate him. I, I feel totally neglected and unappreciated and I want to make him pay. I want to take him for all he's worth, but you know, even that doesn't feel like it's enough. I want to hurt him in a way that he has hurt me. The attorney thought for a moment and then said, well, I have an idea. I mean, you're going to divorce him anyways, so let me suggest that for the next three months or so, you bless him. You do good to him. You build him up. You be kind to him. Don't criticize him. Give him your undivided attention. Speak well of him. Do something nice for him every day. Every time he does something nice for you, thank him for it. Look your best. Be affectionate. Tell him what a great guy he is. Do that for the next three months. And after he thinks he's won over your confidence and your love, hit him with the news that it was all an act, that you hate him and you want a divorce. It will destroy him. 
she thought for a moment and said, you know, I like that. I, I can't go wrong with this. I can't wait to see the look of his eyes when I tell him it was all an act and that it's over. Well, she carried out the plan perfectly. There was just one problem with her plan. After three months of acting like she loved her husband, she realized one day that she actually did love him. And instead of seeking a divorce, they went on a second honeymoon. Now, of course, it doesn't always turn out this way. But whether it does or not, Jesus' call here stands. Agape love your enemy, whoever that may be in your life, by doing good to them. Thirdly, we exercise agape love to our enemies when we bless them with our words. Jesus says, bless those who curse you. This means making the decision that if angry, bitter, mean words are spoken to you, you won't escalate the war of words by retaliating, but will respond with kind words. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Blessing our enemy with our words means we will resist spreading rumors and gossip and slander and criticism sarcastic comments about our enemy or about anyone. Blessing our enemy with our words includes something as simple as greeting our enemy graciously rather than avoiding them or refusing to give them eye contact. In Matthew, again, 5.47, Jesus says, if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Jesus says, you demonstrate agape love when you don't just greet your close friends after a service like this. When you don't just greet those who know you, but when you reach out to those you don't know. People who may seem like not, not only strangers, perhaps enemies to you. Blessing our enemy with our words means we speak to them and reach out to them the way that we would want them to speak to us and reach out to us. A number of years ago, I took our vehicle in to get serviced. The trouble is I did it three times over three days. And I did that because they neglected each time to do what I asked them to do. When it happened for the third time, I was just a teeny bit upset, to put it mildly. Because with the size of our family at the time, functioning with just one vehicle required a whole lot of last-minute planning and changes. And so I called up the service representative, and I felt so justified to let her have it. And I was going to. But then a thought crossed my mind. What if she attends your church? <laughs> well, that thought was enough to lead me to change my tone. And so rather than tearing a strip off of her, I shared the truth in a firm but a loving way. At the end of our conversation, she said, sir, do you mind if I tell you something off the record? And I said, sure. She said, I've been attending your church for the last month or so. <laughs> and I wondered whether you were the real deal. 
No, she didn't say that. I made that part up. This happens more than you know, though, uh, when I'm on the phone, but not on this occasion. Here's what she really said. She said, I had one of the most miserable days of my life today, and I was beginning to wonder how long I could keep doing this job. Of all the people who vented on me today, you had the most reason to be upset with us, and yet you weren't. I just want to thank you for treating me like a person and for being kind. You just made my day. You encouraged me to hang in there. And I'm thinking, you know, it's too bad that everyone can't be nice like me. (laughs) No, I'm thinking, oh, Lord, how close I came to using my words to push someone over the edge. Proverbs 16, 24 says, Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, healing to the bones. Jesus says we demonstrate agape love for our enemies by doing good to them and by blessing them with our words. Fourthly, we exercise agape love to our enemies when we pray for them. Jesus says pray for those who mistreat you who persecute you. John Orkberg points out that in the old Roman ruins some 2,000 years ago, archaeologists have discovered thousands of prayers that were actually, um, that were put down and stored on tablets and people would pay to have their words put on these tablets and then stored. Today, they're referred to as curse tablets because the prayers that were recorded on those tablets were actually curses. People would address a god or a goddess and essentially say, this person hurt me, this is how they hurt me, and I want payback. This is how I want you to hurt them back. Here's part of one such prayer they found. I invoke you, holy angels and holy names, tie up, block, strike, overthrow, harm, destroy, kill, and shatter Eucharius, the charioteer, and all of his horses, tomorrow in the arena of Rome. Let him not receive the honors. Let him be broken up. Let him drag behind. Let his breath be bad and his teeth be yellow. I just made that last part up. (laughs) But my point is, hundreds of thousands of these kind of prayer curses were put on tablets So how many tablets do you think they found in which people prayed that God would bless their enemy? Not a one. And you know, I dare say that's still pretty representative of what happens today. We may not actually pray curses on our enemy the way they did then. We may not record them on our electronic tablets But I wonder how often do we wish negative things for our enemy? And conversely, how often do we not wish blessing on our enemy? When Jesus says, love your enemy by praying for them, he's asking us not to curse them. He's asking us to pray blessing on them. 
The reality is prayer changes things. It will not only change your enemy eventually as God begins to work in that person's life because of your prayers, but more importantly, it will begin to change you and how you see your enemy. As you bring your enemy to God in prayer and you ask him to bless them and their families, to safeguard their health, to encourage them, and to draw them close to himself, something is going to happen to your heart. Your attitude towards your enemy is going to begin to change. You can't pray for a person very long and still hate him. John Piper says, when you pray for your enemy, it is one of the deepest forms of love Because it means that you really want good things to happen to that person. You're actually asking God to bless them. And you can't do that unless something has really changed in you. This will not be something that comes easily to us. But our capacity to pray for God's blessing on our enemy is the litmus test of our own experience of God's grace. Jesus said in Matthew 6.15, if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. In other words, when we stubbornly refuse to extend grace to others, including our enemy, it actually shows that we haven't really experienced the grace of God in our own lives. You know, there's a story in the Old Testament of a man who really struggled extending grace to other people. It's the story of a man named Jonah who was minding his own business when one day his life was interrupted by God. God said, Jonah, I have a mission for you. I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to tell them that unless they repent, they're going to fall under my judgment. Now, Nineveh was Israel's arch enemy and Jonah wanted no part of this assignment. And so he gets on a ship and he sails off to Tarshish. Jonah disobeyed God because he feared that God was going to be kind and gracious and forgiving to his enemies and he couldn't handle the thought that they would actually receive the grace and the forgiveness of God. He wanted God to judge those enemies of his. He wanted uh, him to destroy them Because in his mind, they deserved it. Jonah knew that people matter to God. It's just that certain lost people didn't matter to him. Now, wouldn't you agree that there's a little bit of Jonah in all of us? I believe that most of us have some person in our lives who doesn't matter to us. Someone we believe doesn't deserve God's grace. I say that because we don't pray for them. We don't do good to them. We don't bless them or encourage them. I say that because we think of them, when we think of them experiencing success, when we think of them experiencing God's grace, our heart grows cold. Ever wonder why we don't want God to be gracious to some people? Jim Deathmer believes it's because we ourselves have never been adequately desperate for the grace of God. 
This was Jonah's problem. And so God brought a storm into his life until he himself was totally desperate for God and the grace of God. You know, sometimes like Jonah, we have never been adequately desperate. We've never hit rock bottom or that place where we're totally desperate for the grace of God. And until that happens to us, until we come to that place of desperation, we think that we are somehow better, that we are somehow more deserving of God's grace than other people. Truly desperate people never do that. And we must understand that God loves us too much to leave us there. In the case of Jonah, he used the wind and the waves, the sailors, the sea, and some extended time in a huge fish to discipline him and to bring him to a point of total desperation to God and the grace of God. In the same way, God will not leave us where we're at in our faith journey. If our heart is hard toward our enemy, if we refuse to extend grace and love to our enemy, like a loving father, he will often use discipline in our lives to bring us to a place of desperation, a place where we hit rock bottom, and then by his grace, he will restore us so that we can not only proclaim that our God is a gracious God, but begin to freely extend grace and a radical love for our enemies because we now have truly experienced the radical love and the grace of God ourselves. It's no longer just something we know in our head. It has now become part of our experience. And when it's part of our experiences, it changes everything. Friends, you may not think much of your enemy, but God does. You may think that your enemy doesn't deserve grace, but God does. Jesus didn't just say, you and I are worth dying for. He says, our enemy is worth dying for. The cross really shows how much people matter to God. We have no reason to conclude ever that we are worthless in the sight of God. For our creator, Jesus Christ, thought we were so precious that he left the splendor of the Holy Trinity and the fellowship that he enjoyed there. He came to earth and he died for us on an accursed cross. And God calls us to value other people that he created with the same love. Even when everything within us is repulsed by the, by, by the idea of loving our enemy. God calls us to remember that he died for this person too. And that this person needs Jesus. And he needs to see the love of Jesus in us. May it be so. To the glory of God and for the sake of a world. That needs the Jesus that we know and love would you bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment
I'm going to ask you to think again of your enemy. I want you to name your enemy. Or the person that feels like an enemy to you. Maybe someone in your home, in your family, extended family, someone at work, someone in your neighborhood. Can you name them? You can't love them if you don't identify them. Stop the denial. In light of what Jesus has done for you, in what way is God calling you to do good and to bless your enemy? I want you to think about that now, but I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to show you that this coming week. If doing so seems impossible to you, then be honest with the Lord right now in prayer. Tell him you don't feel like loving your enemy or know how to love your enemy and ask him for his help. Ask him to change your heart. If you have trouble letting go of your animosity or your bitterness, then tell God that too and ask him to change your heart. Ask the Lord to help you deal with your resentment and your anger. Ask him for the capacity to like the person, to love the person that you don't even like. Remembering Philippians 4.3 that says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Ask him for his strength. Take a moment right now and talk to God. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your incredible love toward us. Thank you for the words of Jesus. This very hard word, Lord, about loving our enemy. I pray, Lord, that in our lives we will truly come to that place of understanding and experiencing your grace. That it would be such a profound experience in our lives, Lord, that we would not hesitate to extend that grace to other people. I pray, Lord, that you would give us direction, that you would give us the humility And Lord, that you would give us the creativity of how we might love those who don't love us. That you would show us through your spirit of things we can do and things we can say that would communicate to our enemy the love that is resonant within us love that comes from you. For I pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
God be with you. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.